this morning uh, for our sermon text. You'll see printed there Romans 9.30 through 10.13. I'm actually going to read back up a little bit and read uh, just for context's sake, starting in Romans 9.27. So you can listen to that and then follow along, of course, when we get to verse 30. This is God's Word. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, that the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the command shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you again for your word and do ask that you would continue to impress it upon our hearts and lives. We pray that your spirit would attend to its proclamation now so that it might encourage the faith of your people, that you would pick them up and you would set them on their feet so that they might glorify you and serve you and be encouraged in the gospel that is theirs. And for those who know you not, we ask that your word would break forth into their hearts, tearing down the walls of unbelief so that they may stumble no longer, but might rest 
In the mercy and grace of Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you, if not all of you, probably remember a few years ago while I was out cycling that I took a little bit of a tumble on a gravel road uh, after I was stung by a wasp and I reached out to swat it, which was not a good idea, especially when you're going pedaling down the road or about 20 miles an hour and it's a gravel road and you lose control. And of course, I went down, skidded across the gravel, chipped my elbow, got some pretty serious road rash. And then eventually ended up in the hospital because I didn't treat it right. Um, Even though my wife's a nurse, I don't always listen to her good medical wisdom. Um, So I didn't go into the ER and as a result got an infection, ended up needing a high dose of antibiotics to clear that up. And so as it turns out, in case you're wondering, if you fall off your bike, it does hurt. I mean, we all know that, though, right? We know that falls can hurt. We know that if you just trip while you're walking down the sidewalk, it can bring great injury. If you climb a ladder, you you try to be careful because you know that if you fall, you might break your arm or at the very least bruise your ego. Falls bring pain. They create injuries. And so we try our best to guard ourselves from them. We, we put on a helmet if we're going to ride our bike. We're careful as we climb the ladder. We try to protect ourselves from stumbling. Well, Paul's words here in this text this morning are a guard, a protection, a warning against a hard fall. A fall that is far more destructive than falling off a bike or a ladder He writes to us regarding Israel's hard fall. Now back in the beginning of Romans 9, Paul explained that Israel as a people and as a nation had every advantage given to them so that they might know God and enjoy Him forever. Israel were God's covenant people, given the law, the prophets, the promises. And yet when Christ the Messiah came, they stumbled, they tripped, they fell, they, they stumbled over the gospel, they stumbled over God's grace. And so hard was Israel's fall that Paul tells us in Romans nine twenty seven and 28 that unless God had saved a remnant, unless he was merciful and had not saved some of them, they would all have been destroyed. They would have been left a smoldering mark on history just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Paul's words to us this morning are a warning, a warning of the hard fall that happens if we stumble over Jesus rather than submit to him as Lord. But Paul's words are more than just a warning. They are also a hope because they show us the high salvation that is ours when we simply confess Christ as our Lord and believe in his resurrection. And there are two things, two parts of this warning, and then we'll look at the hope that Paul has. The first part of this warning is that unbelief brings great injury to your soul. Unbelief brings great injury to your soul. We see this by way of contrast that Paul makes between the unbelief of the people of Israel who rejected Christ and the faith of the Gentile peoples. So Paul writes... In Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness 
did not succeed in reaching that law. So what we see there is that by faith, the Gentiles attained that which they did not pursue. Now, historically, until the coming of Christ in the flesh, the Gentiles were, generally speaking, there were specific cases where this was uh, different, but generally speaking, the Gentile nations, the Gentile peoples of the earth, were alienated from the righteousness of God. That is to say that God did not originally call them to be his people. He did not give to them his written law to reveal his righteousness. They did not seek God. They had no temple in Jerusalem, no Levitical priesthood pointing to the redemption that comes through God's grace, through the promised deliverer that was to come. There was no regular special witness to the righteousness of God for the majority of the peoples of the world. But despite that great disadvantage, they attained the very thing they weren't even looking for, that they weren't even pursuing. They attained righteousness, God's righteousness. That is to say, a right relationship with God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And how did they get this wonderful prize? Paul says, by faith. It was faith in Christ, faith in the gospel. For we hold that no, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 3.28. But what of Israel? On the other side of this contrast, what of the old covenant people of God? Well, despite every advantage, Paul says they failed to obtain that same righteousness. They were given the law of God, but it was a law they could not keep. And so they did not attain that which they so desperately ran after. Righteousness, being right with God. And why? Why is that, asked Paul? He tells us in verses 32 and 33 of Romans 9, why? Why didn't they attain God's righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes again from the Old Testament, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, by faith, the Gentiles then obtained what they did not pursue, but Israel stumbled because they pursued righteousness through the law rather than by faith. So, unlike the Gentiles... They sought to be made right in God's eyes, not by faith, but based on their own might, their own works, the things they did, what they said, how they lived. And in doing that, they stumbled. They took a hard fall. They stumbled over Christ and failed to attain the very goal of righteousness that was spelled out in that law that they pursued so zealously. And in stumbling... They injured themselves with a mortal spiritual wound. You see, the law of God is very, very clear. It promises to you life. It promises life to all who can obey it, its precepts and its commands, without any measure of failure. 
If you can keep it perfectly, you would be perfectly righteous. But if you cannot keep the law, if you break it just in the smallest part, the law promises not blessing, not life, but a curse. The curse of God's holy judgment for transgressing His standard of righteousness. The curse of death. Now we know from the Bible that it is impossible for fallen sinful humans like us to keep God's law perfectly. And no matter how hard we might try, we can never, ever meet that standard of righteousness that God requires in His law. Israel had more advantage than you and I could ever imagine. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had the temple. It was right there. And they couldn't do it. Which means there must be another way, a better way than to receive or to achieve that righteousness that the law requires. And that way is the way of faith. Faith in God's promised Redeemer, Christ Jesus our Lord, the way that the Gentiles followed. But that same Redeemer, that was the salvation of the Gentiles, was a stone of stumbling for the Jews, and they stumbled in their unbelief, and that unbelief brought them great injury, because stumbling hurts. In fact, we must not downplay Israel's hard fall here as just a, a mere irritation or a, a trip with a skinned knee. This was an epic failure. It was a failure to win that prize of all God's blessing for all time, forever and ever, which means that instead of being blessed by God, they remained under the curse of God. Instead of life, they stumbled headlong into the grave. Unbelief brings great injury to the soul who fails to trust Christ. But we must notice something else about Israel here in this text. Because, yes, Israel had unbelief. And it brought great spiritual harm upon them. But that is not to say that they had no belief. Because they did believe in God. They believed in His law. They believe that one must be right before God if they are to enjoy His blessings. And they had a great zeal for God as evidenced by the way they lived. But mere zeal for God can be misguided. And mere zeal cannot save. It is only the grace of God which we believe that does. So the second part of this warning then that we see here in this text is does is not only does unbelief bring great injury but zeal for God can be greatly ignorant of God. So you have unbelief that injures and zeal that is ignorant. Paul explains, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so we again see Paul's burning passion for his fellow countrymen. He had a desire which led him to pray to God that the Jews might be saved from this hard fall, from this stumbling. After all, the Jews were so close to the truth of the gospel 
Remember back in Romans 9, when Paul first pours out his heart and this great desire, this great burden that he carries for his own people, he rehearses all of God's privileges that God had given them. He says they were Israelites and to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the, the giving of the law, worship and promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Jews then had this great zeal for God. And what is zeal? Well, it's, it's deep concern. It's, it's devotion towards something or someone or, or some cause. Zeal is an, an awe-consuming passion that influences your thinking and your living. Everything you do is done in devotion to that for which you are zealous. And zeal can be a really good thing. Zeal for God can certainly be a good thing. And the zeal that Paul the Apostle had before his conversion was a zeal that led him to persecute the church. But after God's grace arrested his heart, and captured him and showed him the forgiveness and love of Christ as he came to faith and repentance. That zeal that he had before didn't go away. That zealous spirit of Paul filled him with courage to take the gospel to the world. And Jeremiah the prophet said that the word of God was like a a burning fire in his heart, shut up in his bones, and he couldn't contain it. He had to proclaim it. And would to God that we would pray and seek that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for the proclamation of God's Word. But zeal can be and is often misplaced. Well, those Jews had a zeal for God. Paul explains here in verse 2 of chapter 10 of Romans that it was without knowledge. Now think about that for a minute and about what you know regarding Israel. Because the people of Israel certainly had a knowledge of God, didn't they? They had a temple, they had priests, they had a history of prophets declaring, thus saith the Lord. They had the very word of God contained in his law. They had the ark of the covenant where the glory of God dwelt. What knowledge of God did they not have? How were they zealous but with an ignorant zeal. Well, verse 3 tells us, and notice what's repeated here, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so what are they ignorant of? They were ignorant of God's righteousness, which led them to establish their own righteousness which resulted in them not submitting to God's righteousness. You see, zeal without knowledge, without understanding how righteous God truly is and what His law really is calling us to do, that kind of zeal, zeal without knowledge, leads to the wrong kind of righteousness. So back when we started in Romans, I explained that that Paul's concern throughout this entire letter is the gospel of God's 
righteousness, how we are made right with God. And so the good news of the gospel is that through Christ, we are made righteous. We are able to be in God's presence and enjoy his blessings forever. That's what justification is all about. That is the righteousness that comes through Christ alone. That's what it means to be justified by faith alone. And that is what the people of Israel missed. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They didn't understand how high a standard of God's perfect law, or that God's perfect law actually set before them. They did not comprehend the full weight of it. And so they said, well, we'll establish our own. We can do this. And in doing that, they created their own standard so that they thought they could make them, but in doing that, thought that they could make themselves right before God. And they failed to submit to God. You're actually failing God's righteousness when you establish your own. It just makes you more unrighteous. Now, we still do this as people, whether we're Jew or Gentile, and we do it one of two ways. The we are either legalists or we are antinomians. And an antinomian, well, what's that? Well, antinomianism says that there is no law that applies to me because God is love and grace and mercy or love is love. So it really doesn't matter what I do. I can live the way I want, think the things I want to think, because at the end of the day, God is going to be gracious to me. And what antinomianism fails to see is the holiness of God that is contained in his law. It fails to see that there is a need for continual repentance and faith leaning upon God's grace and mercy in order to become like God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It abuses the grace of God as we saw back in Romans 6 uh, where we, we read, Shall we sin that grace may abound? And what is Paul's response? Absolutely not. God forbid. But legalism is very similar to that. It's the other side of the coin. See, what a legalist does is he lowers the standards of God's law so that he or she can boast of actually fulfilling God's law and saying, hey, I did it. I'm righteous now. Jesus gives us a couple examples of that in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21, 22, Jesus says, as he's proclaiming to the crowd there on the mountain, you have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. What's he quoting from? He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he doesn't stop there, does he? No, he goes to the Sixth Commandment as well. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that just because you don't actually murder your neighbor and try to hide his body in your backyard doesn't mean you haven't already done so in your heart because of your spiteful anger and hatred towards him. And just because you didn't physically cheat on your spouse doesn't mean you haven't already done that in your mind through your thoughts and through the images you've looked at upon a computer screen or your phone. You see, the very motions of our heart are sinful. 
They are bent away from God. They celebrate ourselves and elevate us to the place that only God should be. And so we break God's commands all the time. But what we like to do as humans, as people, is we like then to take God's law and reduce His commandments down to something that we actually can do so that we feel better about ourselves. So now our sin really isn't sin because, hey, I'm actually being pretty righteous. I'm keeping a standard here. See, you can convince yourself that simply by attending worship on Sunday morning that you're keeping the first commandment, or not the first commandment, I'm sorry, the third commandment, to keep the Sabbath. But afterwards, you make the day all about what you want to do rather than God. And you can convince yourself that you really don't take God's name in vain because you don't use curse words. You don't use His name as you curse out others. But you're also ashamed to be identified by His name in public. You hide who you are. You see, we lower God's standard to establish our own righteousness just like the Jews did, just like the Pharisees. And in doing that, we fail to submit to God's high standard of righteousness. And that, brothers and sisters, that is unbelief. It's unbelief that injures, that wounds your soul, that harms you spiritually. We know that God requires holiness, so we create our own sense of holiness. Growing up as a Baptist, uh, a fundamentalist Baptist, I heard this all the time. We always established our own sense of righteousness that made us think we were keeping God's law. We summarized it in a little cheeky mantra, I don't date, I don't chew, I don't go, go with girls who do. As if somehow those things made us right before God. We know that to enjoy God's blessing in our lives, we must be righteous. And so we create our own standard so that we can proclaim to Him that we have done what He has expected. But that's not God's righteousness, is it? It's our own. And at the end of the day, what does it leave you with? Nothing. Nothing to boast of before God because you're still a sinner. It, it leaves you empty and hollow. I mean, do you ever wonder why sometimes that no matter how devoted you try to be to God, you still feel empty and apathetic? It's because we are still trying to trust our own effort to know God and to be known by Him and to be accepted by Him rather than simple rest. That's what faith is. Rest in the one who makes us into what we need to be, the one who makes us righteous. So even as Christians, we can and often do fail to see the full measure of all that is ours in Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. What does Paul say here? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. God's righteousness isn't attained by keeping the law because you can never keep it perfectly. But you can trust the one who is the perfect Savior who did. That's the remedy. That's the answer to all your striving and all your weariness. That's the remedy to all our unrighteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus 
that he gives to us when we come to him in faith. And so, yes, unbelief does bring great injury. And zeal, even zeal for God, can be full of ignorance. But, and here is the great hope of this text, and it starts to emerge in verses 5 through 13, saving righteousness is indigenous. That is to say, it is natural with faith. So unbelief brings great injury. Zeal for God can be full of great ignorance, but the saving righteousness of God is indigenous with faith in Christ. In other words, righteousness which leads you to God comes naturally when you trust the gospel. All you need to be made right with God is simple faith, believing what God has done for you in Jesus the Son. And so look what Paul says here in verses 5 through 7. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, it might seem here in these words that Paul is once again juxtaposing righteousness attained by works and righteousness attained by faith to declare that uh, the former is impossible and what we need is the latter. We need to trust Christ alone. And while that is true, that isn't exactly what he's trying to get at here. This is actually a really difficult text to translate into the English language. And you'll see similar wording in different English translations. But the gist of it is this. What Paul is saying is that God's covenant grace, that is his desire to save and have a people for his name, and he will be their God, and he will do that through a Messiah who is Christ the Lord, that covenant grace was evident even in the law he gave to Moses at Sinai to his people. The law of God is written with the ink of God's grace. And so what leads us then to life, everlasting life, is so easily accessible and readily available. I mean, do you want the righteousness of faith that brings salvation? Do you want to have every sin forgiven and the shame of every stumbling failure erased? Well, you don't have to look far. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't need to try to create your own standard of righteousness to get it. You don't have to ascend to heaven to try to bring it down. And you don't have to dive into the depths of the sea to find your way to God's forgiveness. There's no reason to search the records of heaven on high for the grace of Christ because He's already brought it down to you. And you don't have to descend to the grave to bring him up because he's already risen for you. In other words, the grace of God written in his word is already near you. That's what Paul says in verse 8. What does it say? What does the word of God say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Again, he's talking about the gospel. The word of faith is the gospel that Paul preached. It is so near that it can be found on your own lips and believed within your own heart. It doesn't come from trying to make yourself a better person. It doesn't come from lowering God's standard of righteousness in his law to one that you think you can keep. 
in your own strength. Those are what will lead you to unbelief that injures you spiritually. But it comes through the simple Word of God, the Word of faith that calls you to trust what Jesus has done for you completely. Because, verses 9 and 10, because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And in these verses we see the very operation of our faith. We're to confess and believe, believe and confess. One is an action of the mouth, the other of the heart. One is a declaration for all to hear. The other, the inner trust that something is true. Confession with the mouth confirms our faith in the heart. And what are we to confess and believe? We confess that Jesus is Lord. That is to say, we demonstrate our allegiance to Him as our King. And we submit ourselves to his rule of grace. And what are we to believe? We're to believe in his resurrection. Why the resurrection? Because it is God's definitive proof that Jesus truly is the Lord of all. Jesus had all authority so that even the grave itself must yield before him. And the curse of the law must break. For he has risen. Notice finally the result of this confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in his resurrection. Paul says in verses 11 through 13, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his grace on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes will not be put to shame. It doesn't matter if you are the Jew who stumbled or the Gentile who did not pursue God's righteousness. God is an impartial God and He pours out His riches on all who will call upon Him. Irregardless of who you are or what you have done, if you will turn to Him in faith and repentance, you will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, not might be, as if it's only a hopeful possibility, but will be saved. Oh, I need to hear that. I need to hear it every day. I'm sure you do as well. Because whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or just 30 minutes, the reality is that we all, like Israel, will stumble in our own unbelief. We'll stumble in unbelief and it will injure our souls. And sometimes we will have great zeal, zeal to improve ourselves before God. But oftentimes we do that with an ignorance of how holy and righteous God really is. And when that happens and we struggle and we sin and we fail, we stumble. When that happens, we begin to doubt We grow discouraged. We struggle to believe that we are really and truly saved because our hearts are covered in our own shame as a result of our sinful stumbles. 
But brothers and sisters, you don't have to look far to find the answer, to find the proof that God's righteousness really is written upon your heart and your life. You just need to hear it confessed with your own mouth and believed in your own heart. You see, that's why we worship together. That's why we need each other as a church. That's why we come together on the Lord's Day and confess that Jesus is Lord every day of the week because we're acknowledging together that God has raised Him from the dead, that we serve a living Savior. And in doing that, we are building each other's faith. See, the Word of God read and preached and confessed and believed is what picks you up from that stumbling and unbelief, that hard fall of sin that you experience, and it sets your feet planted firmly on God's high salvation in Christ our High King. So don't neglect God's Word. Do not neglect worshiping with His people. Look to Him often. Confess and believe for everyone Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we do praise you for your word, that you use it to strengthen our faith, to build us up, even when we would stumble, even when we would have doubts, even when we would feel the sting of our own shame and our own sin. Lord, you are gracious and merciful. And so help us, to continue in your word. Write it upon our hearts. Press it upon our minds. If we are parents, help us to show it to our kids. If we have friends or family who do not believe, may we hold it forth so that they might believe and be delivered from their unbelief. For your grace is great. Your mercy is greater than all our sin. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand then and thank God that we have a Father who loves us. A Father who loves us so deeply that He was willing to send His own Son to the cross. And a Savior who loves us so deeply that on that cross He bore our sins so that they might be erased and forgiven, and we might be made righteous in Christ forever.